Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about a Southern Baptist Convention report about Russell Moore, and then we're joined by Jeff Boris. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on yet another cold uh, Tuesday afternoon here in the Chicagoland, but we are glad to be together. Uh, got a great show ahead of us, but Ian, as we talked about yesterday and was on social media, we let the world know that that you are moving to Nashville, Tennessee. And as I was thinking about it, uh, I've to take, you're going to be going to a new church down there and, and, uh, working at another church. And so as I was thinking about it, and I realized other than going to college, I've never moved from one state to another, like never anything that big. What's the level of stress right now? How do you even go down that road? I, it got me really thinking, like, what does your life look like right now? Yeah. You asked what my level of stress, I would say, uh, yes. Hi. It's high. <laughs> it's high. It's um I'm sure I'm sure it's made a lot easier by the fact that we have a three and two year old. That's a real that has like a real calming <laughs> presence in our house. I'm gonna miss your sarcasm. Yeah, it's uh, I mean I'm currently like looking at just a bunch of boxes surrounded by more garbage and trying to I mean, I think it is weird enough moving in general, but then to do it in a pandemic feels strange and surreal to be honest so we i mean we've been slowly chipping away at it but even that is starting to weigh in on us a little bit like we are we are running out of time so we're we i got it all mapped out in a google doc and what days we're handling when and we're we got our donate pile and then our try and sell on facebook marketplace pile and the you know set it on fire in the backyard pile and uh <laughs> we're just we're just going for it so it's yeah, fairly stressful. I, massive props to my wife. She's she's doing an incredible job of kind of keeping us on task. Again, terrible time to have knee surgery because I'm like supposed to be off of my leg, and which I'm not doing. Yeah. And, and my I was supposed to have the stitches out on Friday, and the doctor was like, "Oh no, those are you cannot do that." I'm like, "Okay, well, add that to the pile then, I guess, of us trying to oh, <laughs> navigate the yeah, next few weeks." T- it totally just hit me because I've, I, you know, when thinking about this whole thing for you, I'm like, okay, you, you end with a church, you get to another church, like that's super like stressful, but exciting, but sad. And then the radio show and saying goodbye to people. And I'm like, oh yeah, you actually have to move. Uh-huh. <laughs> like it's just, that's, I know people are like, yeah, no kidding. But I don't know why I was just thinking about like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a big deal with a two and three year old. It's cold outside. So anyway, you know, I'm, we can make a plea to people out there if you, you know, if you need help moving, I'm sure, but you know. Oh, I'm just I appreciate that. I'm uh, with you, though. I, I haven't moved since coming out here to college either. Katie's been here her entire life, and I moved here yeah. you know, to attend Judson in 2003. So it's it's been home for me for quite some time, too. Yeah. So anyway, uh, if you've missed that announcement, Ian is going to be uh, leaving the Chicagoland, heading down to Nashville. Uh, the name of the church what, is Bridge or is it Bridge Community Church? Is uh, there the community bridge. in there? The Bridge Church. It's just the Bridge. The Bridge Church. Okay. A wonderful church. I've actually been there down in the Nashville area that Ian will be at. And so uh, we've got one more week of shows here through Friday. Uh, and then there'll be a new season for the common good that we'll be letting you know about as we figure that out. So, uh, but we wanted to have a regular show today. And with that in mind, Russell Moore, somebody that we have talked about often on this show. Uh, Russell Moore 
amongst other things, is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, he calls it's the convention's public policy arm. Uh, and to say that he's a lightning rod for people would be an understatement. Russell Moore uh, he regularly, uh, he, ha- he, uh, he has said stuff very critical of President Trump, uh, critical of, uh, people's, uh, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention, kind of, uh, love for President Trump or former President Trump. And, uh, a lot of people have gone really hard and called for Russell Moore's job at various times. And so with that in mind, the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention came out with a report about uh, ethics and religious liberty commission, but really it's about Russell Moore and it calls it quote, a distraction from the great commission. So we don't know if there's any more to add to the story, but I would love to know, uh, maybe give us a little more detail of what I missed, but then I would love to know your thoughts on their coming down on him being a distraction from the great commission. Well, let me read some of the intro to kind of frame it for everybody in a long awaited report released Monday, February 1st, a task force commissioned to study the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, ERLC for short, calls the convention's public policy arm a significant distraction from the Great Commission. That's what you said. Blaming the ERLC for the loss of more than a million dollars is constituent church donations to the denomination. The task force led by Georgia Pastor Mike Stone quotes the leader of a state Baptist convention as saying the ERLC has been a stumbling block not worth the mission dollar investment. Mission dollar investment? Is that the way that's? I've never yep. heard it put yep. quite that yep. way. But there seems to be as much politics as economics in the report's conclusions. It notes that in recent years, the fear of a, quote, liberal drift in the nom- denomination has led some churches to leave the SBC or to withhold giving. Part of that dissatisfaction is aimed at the ERLC, uh, ERLC and particularly at Reverend Russell Moore, who has led the ERLC since 2013. I actually don't think I realized he'd been leading it that long. Do you remember who led it before yeah. him? I don't. I actually don't know. I don't know that it existed before him, but if it no, did, I'm not sure you who might it was. Be right. You might be right. Okay, so that's probably enough for us to riff on for a little bit, right? This, uh, The fear of the liberal left, the people withholding their giving based on their satisfaction or dissatisfaction with what you could probably call trajectory or performance. Uh, it all gets pretty sticky from there. I imagine people probably have already made up their minds with regards to kind of quote-unquote side they land on, what I think is a, a pretty interesting ethical question. Yeah, I mean, because you see this in churches regardless, right? Big or small, uh, north or south, doesn't really matter. Like there's a, there's always going to be some temptation from some people to withhold giving if the direction, trajectory, or performance isn't to their standards, right? You probably, mm-hmm. I imagine over the course of 20 years, encountered some degree of that. How have, how have you navigated mm-hmm. that kind of tension? It is. And, and I've never been part of a denomination in my uh, professional life. I've worked at now at two churches, both are non-denominational churches. But within that, you'll have people, as you said, withhold their giving. And man, it's really hard, but you got to kind of stick to your guns, right? You got to go, I, I believe in this. And if that's going to hurt the bottom line, I, I just got to keep doing it. And usually there's harder conversations to have with the people who are using their money to take the stand. Uh, but you could get, let's put it this way, you get yourself in a lot of trouble when you chase the money in a church, in an organization, yep. a denomination going, hey, everything's going to be driven by giving uh, because that's all fine and well until uh, people are asking you to do things that are not part of your part of your values. And, and that's where it gets really 
uh, ugly. What do you think about their idea that, quote unquote, uh, he's in a political arm of the denomination and he's just he gets in hot water because of his views on immigration, race, Donald Trump himself, it goes on to say, have landed him in hot water. Uh, but what about using the Great Commission, saying he's a distraction or a stumbling block to, quote unquote, the Great Commission, as if these political issues need to be kept separate from the work of the church and the Great Commission? Yeah, I mean, part of me, it's, again, probably a bit unanswerable, at least from where we sit. Like, would they have felt the same level of quote unquote distraction if it wasn't that it was political engagement, but it was political engagement they agreed with? Like, would they would it still be seen as a distraction? And again, obviously, it's, you know, it's your money to do with it what you will. I do think this is some of what Tyler Huckabee was talking about even yesterday on the show, where sometimes I think we live in this reality where it's like it's the Great Commission. And then way over here on the other side, you have things that have to do with politics or culture or my neighborhood or community. And I think the more that we separate those two is if like, now nah, it yeah. needs to be about the the Great Commission. Um, those those things are at the very least more closely linked than we would like to imagine, I I would guess. And sometimes maybe even even more so than that. So again, if it feels a little strange for you and I, because neither of us are a part of the SBC. And, Correct. Uh, you know, that certainly is someone's prerogative to cut or not cut a check, I guess. But there's probably like, I imagine the reason for you having it on this segment in particular is like, ah, there's some deeper stuff going on here that I think is worth paying attention mm-hmm. to. Yeah. And also I, I th- something I've come to figure out is that of who are the people that I respect the most that I don't know them, right? Twitter or their blogs or writings, whether it be politicians or in the church world. And I find Russell Moore to be one of those who I increasingly am like, I like him. I agree with him, and I and I like uh, what he stands for in general. So, uh, an interesting conversation. You can find this up at our Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, we're excited to be joined by the Creative Arts Director and Arts Catalyst at Community Christian Church, Jeff Boris. He's coming up next here on the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you're having a great day. And we're thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by the Creative Arts Director and Arts Catalyst at Community Christian Church, Jeff Boris. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. So our audience can get to know you a little bit better. Jeff, why don't you introduce yourself however you'd like? Sure. Well, as I already mentioned, uh, my name is Jeff Boris. And... um, Let's see here. Yeah, I'm the creative arts director. I've loved art my whole life. And uh, early in my life, art and God collided in a great way. And so that kind of got me started on the church path, which has been really, really, really fun. I'm married to my high school sweetheart, which is mm-hmm. pretty awesome. We've got two little boys. Um, they are eight and ten. So, Jeff, typically when I describe you to someone else who doesn't know you, somewhere in that introduction, I'll include something about how frustratingly good you are at so many things. Like I remember even my first year at community, each time you like engage something different in a Sunday morning experience, for example, I was like, he can do that too. That's so frustrating. <laughs> but I know that this last year has been, I mean, to call it a curveball is a massive understatement. I'd love to kind of get into your brain a little bit. What has it been like since March to have to pivot in so many different ways and for you to be, really at the helm of a lot of those decisions. What's, what's the last year been like for a creative arts director? Yeah. Um, in many ways, it's been uh, the most annoying and frustrating thing I've ever done. <laughs> and then 
and yeah, and then in some ways it's been it's been really fun. I mean, we lost a lot of the the great stuff that comes from being in the live environment. You know, there's so many things there, just being able to see people and sing with people and look people in the eye and see how other people are responding. Um, you know, all that went away overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, but some of the things that have been really good about it though, is we've got 11 locations. And for the first time in really my entire time at the church, we were able to really use all of our artists from all of our locations, Mm -hmm. um, which has been really, really neat because I think when it comes to art, you know, one of the really things, one of the things that's really important is, is being able to have a great team around you and being able to trust the expertise of all of those people. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of times from a creative arts director standpoint, I almost view myself as like a curator, not necessarily needing to have the best ideas, but being able to find the best stuff and then to display it in the best way. Right. Right. And I think that just makes for like an awesome team dynamic because now I'm looking at, you know, our musicians and saying like, what is the best stuff that you have that fits perfectly into what we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Or even I'm looking at our teaching pastors to some extent. We work in it closely with our teaching pastors. Like, what is the best way to communicate that point hmm. or where you're going to land your topic? Or, you know, what is the best visual design that our stage design team can come up with? You know, sometimes I do have great ideas, right? But mm-hmm. a lot of times it's just by being available to the team and having a great group of people around you and you know, sort of letting them shine and letting them take the stage in a really awesome way. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So Jeff, I think a lot of people out there, they know, you know, traditional church roles, the the lead pastor, the children's minister, the worship director. Could you even continue to flesh out creative arts directors? Some people are probably out there going, (laughs) what exactly do they do? I don't get it. Help people understand your role better and the importance of it within the church environment. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a definitely a a kind of a unique role and it, it goes back into a little bit of what I said. There are so many, um, elements of the way God has wired people that I think it would be a shame if we don't holistically tap into as many of those as possible. Yeah. And so the creative arts director role in my context is sort of that person that's constantly always thinking of how can we create a seamless story from, you know, from parking lot to seat and then back that tells in essence, like we're kind of always telling three stories at once. You're telling the macro story of like, like the redemptive story of God throughout all of time. Like that's kind of the big, big, big story. Mm -hmm. Then you've got this slightly smaller story that is like our church's specific story of how God has called that, you know, how God has called our church to kind of function in, in light of the big story. And then you've got like the weekend specific big idea story. Like what are we talking about this weekend? Right. And so being able to like kind of flesh those out in a streamlined way where you're using the best of music and the best of art and the best of talent and and trying to tap into, you know, as many of these communication styles and learning styles that people have um, is a lot of what I do. So it's a lot of overlapping with the teaching team. And, you know, a lot of my role with Ian was that, you know, it's a lot of overlapping with our musical artists and our worship pastors and saying, okay, what are some elements we can do? It's, paying attention to visuals and like color theory, like which colors evoke a certain emotion that helps us tell this part of the story. Things like that. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) And this is is part of what I mean. So you're not only, you know, by my metrics, a phenomenal musician, but you also care about architecture and space. But I think you you also have a a gift for communicating. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit next in the uh, following segment. But I talked to more 
pastors who just don't seem to understand like the role of art or artistry or creativity at all. At the very least, it's like, ah, as long as that like helps set up the sermon, that's, mm-hmm. that's about the extent of people's understanding of like the role of art and creativity in the church. And I've been kind of dying to ask you in this context, how do you see the role of art and creativity at like the local level? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I think there's a scientific approach, right? And the scientific approach is we all know that there are like multiple learning modalities, right? So you've got the auditory learners, you've got the visual learners. And I think it's important for primarily teaching pastors to realize that you're only really dealing with one of those learning styles. Right. Hmm. Right. And, and so if the goal of a pastor or a teaching pastor, and I think it is the goal of most of them is to convey the gospel in as tangible and practical way as you possibly can, as soon as you go, oh my gosh, my gift set only really applies to maybe one of those styles. Right. One of the ways that people can hear about God, then you go, oh my gosh, okay, well, what? how else can I do this? How can I open my palette? And a lot of times, you know, that becomes, you know, silly, you know, PowerPoint or ProPresenter slides or photos or video clips or whatever, <laughs> which once again, everything going digital kind of killed that because of all the copyright stuff that mm-hmm. churches ignore when they're only in person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, let's be honest. Um, so, so I think if you can have that conversation with a teaching pastor or with a senior leadership team, then you kind of begin to realize, oh, if we want to really kind of like help people understand and get a more holistic view of who God is, um, you know, incorporating a lot more of art is really important. I've had the opportunity a couple of times to do um, some breakouts and workshops and some conferences. And one of the things that I always tell people is this very little simple thing. We'll come out of a main session. It's probably a phenomenal communicator. And I'll ask the group of people in the room with me, like, what was the second point that the pastor made? <laughs> right. Almost nobody knows, yeah. right? But then you say, fill in this line. My hope is built on nothing less but... Yeah. And everybody right. goes, Jesus Christ. Right? Everybody knows yeah. the next line. Yeah. And then I and then I then I ask another question. How many of you have sung that song within the last year at your church? Hmm. Half the hands are like, no, I don't know. Nobody. Right. Right. Well, why did that stick? Because yeah. it was tied to art. It wasn't just talking word. And you look at the lyrics of that song, and that those lyrics are the entire gospel presentation. Yeah. You kind of don't need anything more than that. Hmm. So that's not to diminish the power of spoken word. It's to treat the power of spoken word as one of the many art forms great. that people can learn by. Yeah, that's great. That's good. We're thrilled to be joined by Jeff Boris, creative arts director and arts catalyst at Community Christian Church. So, Jeff, I think a lot of pastors have to go, man, I really want to move in that direction, but I don't have the budget. I don't have the time. I don't have the creativity myself. What, what would you say to somebody in that smaller to medium-sized church about also how to embrace this and kind of move their church in this direction? Totally. Well, just so everyone knows, like, that's where I got started. Nice, like, yes. I planted a church in Michigan, 242 Community Church, many, many years ago. And that was a church plant. We started with nothing. <laughs> Myself and, and Dave Dummett and a couple other people, and we just went for it. So the first thing that I would tell people is, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche, but it's a true cliche. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, right? <laughs> so like going into it with that mindset of like, okay, this is possible is really key because I've found in a lot of conversations, especially with planters, they kind of get stuck in that whole, well, we can't do that. We don't have the resources of big churches. We don't have, and in art isn't exactly, it's not expensive, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there are facets of it that can be, but Art doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, it's paint. You can do amazing <laughs> things with paint and paper. Yeah, you know, right. 
So one of the first things that I would do, especially as a congregation is growing, is is talk to the people around you. You know, do like when you go to people's houses, do they have a really well designed house? Mm. If so, they'd probably be really good at stage design. Mm. Right. Right. Do you know, is there anybody in the congregation that when the cars are pulling out, they have a banging sound system in their car? <laughs> well, that means they already have what they need to do sound design. Mm. You know, it's kind of figuring out these things. Most people are very creative. They just don't ever think that like they can use that skill set yeah. within the church to serve the kingdom and the congregation. <laughs> right. Which I, I think that's actually think, a, p- a perfect segue because I'd love to know, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on, on reproducing leaders because I know that's something that you're really passionate about. And it's something that I think a lot of people, when they when they read about it or they hear a conference speaker talk about apprenticeship or reproducing leaders, they think that sounds great in concept. I don't know how to actually do that. Like one, <laughs> how do you actually do it? And two, why do you think it's so important? Yeah, well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's super important because I think everybody's an artist. Right. Everybody has the capacity to be an artist. Um, because everybody has a unique way of viewing something and you right. get the, you can get the most thorough and holistic way of expressing something by a lot of feedback. Um, mm-hmm. so I, when it comes to like the reproducing of artists and that's like a overly weird way of just saying like multiplying artists or finding mm-hmm. them and growing them up and giving them opportunity to shine. I, I, I think for me, the biggest thing to realize and to remember is that good art takes time. Hmm. And, and this sounds almost counterintuitive, but great structure can create great art. Like Hmm. we love to hear these stories about, you know, Oh my gosh, Jackson Pollock, you know, got wasted and spent 16 days up in his house, just, you know, blitzed out of his mind, throwing paint at canvases (laughs) and masterpieces came out. Right. Well, what we forget is that he practiced painting for years before that. Yes. <laughs> you know, he was, he messed up a lot. Yeah. And, and I think that's important to remember when you say, okay, let's, let's grow some artists. That means inherently we have to give them time and we have to give them like the space to grow. Right. Yeah. And so you may never have the, so when you're starting out, you know, you're not going to have like exceptional art from day one necessarily, hmm. but little by little, it'll get better. Now, when I talk about time, a lot of times what that means is you can't throw something, you can't say, Hey, could you design me a graphic in 40 minutes and expect the best work of your young artist's life? Right. Right. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You got to give them enough time to really, really grow into it and to think about it and to maybe even, you know, probably even pray about it <laughs> mm-hmm. and to be really intentional about what God is maybe stirring in them to do. Um, so there's some very practical structures, you know, that, that I'd love to talk with anybody about if they want some very specifics, you know, but it does mean that the organization itself, the church itself is going to have to say, we want to give time for our artists to create art. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, that's good. Right. And Jeff, having a having a creative arts director on the show, I can't help but ask after this weekend about the Super Bowl because Ian and I yesterday we talked about the halftime show, and my answer is usually, eh, I liked it or I didn't like it, but I don't have real reason, you know. And so I'm yeah. curious, somebody who is like, you know, this is your thing. You're an artist. You create. This is how your mind thinks. What did you think of the Super Time Super Bowl <laughs> halftime show? Man, I love every Super Bowl show. Um, <laughs> I just think there's so much fun, like. You know, you're you're building for like you're they're making a show that has to be set up in like eleven minutes or something ridiculous. <laughs> right, like that. right. You know, um, 
and it's got to be it's got to be palatable for the broadest group of people ever. And so, like, you have these amazing challenges right from the bat. And I just think if I just think they're fun. Like this last one with the weekend, I was kind of shocked. I was like, I didn't know I knew this many of the weekend. Yeah, right, kind of right. Um, but it was just it was just fun. It was just interesting. Like I I look at it more. You know, this is this is what this is kind of gets goofy and a little bit more philosophical than maybe we want to get. But like, <laughs> I think, especially in the church, you're creating art for a specific reason, right? To help people find their way back to God or, or to help people know something about God. So that sort of needs to shape your art. And I think those same things happen in the Super Bowl where they're going, okay, we have 17 minutes or however long to set this thing up. And we have about 12 minutes to do the show and we got to make it epic. Right. And for the most part, I think they do a really good job. I, hmm. I'm always entertained by them. There hasn't yeah. been one that I remember kind of really sucking. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I thought they were fun. I, 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 what the, the thing that I really loved that I didn't expect with this last one was when he went like behind the weird choir people into right. that room of mirrors. I was yes. like, okay, that, <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> you know? But you could also tell though, in that decision, they knew that their primary audience was not the stadium. Yes. Right. right. Because that part for the stadium probably was awful. Because they were <laughs> right. only watching that on screen. You know what right. I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you were watching it on TV, like probably the everybody the vast majority of their audience you went oh that was a cool moment but in the yeah, stadium yes. it's like okay now i'm not even looking at the talent right, right so there's so many factors that play into that um that i'm always kind of a little bit more deferential to to them doing a good job <laughs> <laughs> i love that man and I, I i said it before in the first segment too i i like i really truly think you're one of the most gifted creative leaders that i know but i i also know that um I've really admired the way that your family functions as well. And I know that we're almost out of time, but I would, I would just love to know how has the, the Boris family really survived the last year? I know you guys are really intentional about Sabbath and about travel. I know that you really care about, about justice and a lot of that's been kind of flipped on its ear just in the last minute or so. How have you guys really kind of made the most of this last year? Sure. Well, we felt within the first week, we felt like um, this time is either going to make or break families. It's either going to mm -hmm. make or break relationships. Yeah. And so we're going to be very intentional about digging into some of the really good practices that we had. Like you mentioned Sabbath, we have been in a practice of taking every Sabbath very intentionally, no mm -hmm. phones, no computers, you know, just spending time with each other and God. We we're going to double down on, on making that a priority. And then any of like the weird things that just kind of pop up that we've never addressed, you know, um, because that all that happens as relationships grow and develop over time. You just kind of shove them behind the rug. We were really intentional about saying, you know what, we're going to talk about those things because this time feels like it's going to make or break hmm. people and relationships. Hmm. And I think near the end of the time, for us, it's been really, really great. We've got two little boys that are growing up in a world that is crazy and almost unrecognizable from the world that I grew up in. Right. So being able to have excellent conversations with them about what they see in the world, what they're watching on TV you know, the, the political world around them. I mean, the, all those opinions are forming and shaping in them right now. We doubled down on saying there's going to be a ton of people that need help and we want to be the helpers. And so how can mm. we help? That's great. And so it's been Meals on Wheels and Compassion International. And, you know, we've, they've been doing some chores that they get paid for. And we were encouraged them to like give generously to people and organizations that they are compassionate about, which starts them on their own journeys about you know, researching different groups and that they can be a part of it. It's just been, it's been really fun. I mean, it's been boring, 
<laughs> we've tried to make it as fun as possible, but as far as our relationship as a family, it's been really, it's been pretty good. It's That's good. great. Well, Jeff, we're thrilled that you uh, joined us today. Why don't you, uh, as we close this up, why don't you let people know where they can find you online, social media, wherever it is, where can people find uh, more of your stuff? Um, I don't even remember what my Instagram thing is. I'm no, so bad. At, <laughs> I'm so bad at the, that's probably. I think it's just Jay Boris. Actually, I think it's just Instagram, and then on just Jay Boris, J B O R I S S. Um, I mean, you can also go to the church and just email me if you that's want. That's great. To, like, like, yeah, that's perfect. Chat if anyone wants anything. Yep. I get that Jeff Morris at communitychristian.org. People could get in touch with you all sorts of ways. Jeff, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, absolutely. Brother. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, there was a story the other day that was flying around Twitter uh, in kind of like of uh, in kind of the baseball world. So there's a guy at ESPN who I really like to read. His name is Jeff Passan. Uh, and Passan wrote an article and did a, it was actually a document, a small documentary uh, about a San Francisco Giants outfielder by the name of Drew Robinson. Uh, it says San Francisco Giants outfielder Drew Robinson's remarkable second act. And so I don't know how familiar you are with the story, uh, but let me just summarize it and we'll kind of get to, to the main point. Again, Drew Robinson, uh, he's, uh, he is a, a, a professional baseball player who kind of got to the point where uh, they're too good for AAA, but not good enough to be like a regular starter in the Major League Baseball. So kind of back and forth, back and forth. And uh, Drew Robinson uh, over the pandemic and all this stuff was just dealing with depression on a deep level uh, and really questioned whether he still wanted to live. And a lot of people, the reason I want to highlight this story is because Drew Robinson's story is relatable for some people, but in another way, it's not relatable. He had reached the pinnacle of his profession. He was a major league baseball player. So not a star, but he was a major league baseball player. So a lot of people out there are going, man, if I were ever a major league baseball player, I wouldn't have a trouble in the world, right? Or I would have no problems. And let me read just this paragraph from Passon's article. It says, Drew sat on his living room couch, poured himself a glass of whiskey, then another, and then he stopped. He didn't have an alcohol problem and didn't want anyone's surmise otherwise. His thoughts crashed into one another about what it would be like and whom it would affect and who would find him. He was alone, alone until the end. At about 8 p.m., in one uninterrupted motion, he leaned on his side, reached out to the coffee table, lifted his gun, pressed it against the right temple, and he pulled the trigger. This was supposed to be the end of Drew Robinson's story. Over the next 20 hours, he would come to realize it was just the beginning of another. And so the story is he didn't die. He uh, had a lot of problems, obviously. Uh, but he goes on to say, I'm here for a reason. Uh, Drew Robinson said just six days before Christmas, he's feeling thankful. He wants to tell the world what happened so he can heal and maybe so he can help others heal as well. Let me just pause there, Ian, and just go, A, did you hear about this story? And if you had, or if this is the first time you'd heard about this, uh, what's the impact that this story has on you as you hear it? I mean, I, I think it's always powerful to hear stories from people who have found themselves in a, in a place like that. And we're, we're able to not only 
like recover, but to also have the drive then to, to want to reach out and to help other people who might be experiencing the same types of difficulty and challenge. And I think, you know, I've mentioned this now a few times, but when we did uh, a series at community a few months back on mental health and I, you know, I, I taught on suicide and suicidal ideation. I, I could mm. not have anticipated how much feedback I would get. And not just from people that were like, Oh man, I'm so glad that you're talking about this. Cause I'm sure that this will be meaningful for a lot of people. I mean, like first person accounts of like, this was me two years ago. Wow. This is me five years ago, or even this is me 20 years ago. And every once in a while, I, st- I still really struggle, but this church or that message or this text or this verse or the Holy spirit or this friend or this community, like just over and over and over again. And, uh, and that was just from well, at least for me personally, one sermon, like it just felt like, hmm. Oh my gosh, all these people, some of whom, I mean, you know, prior to a pandemic, I was like, man, I, I interacted with you every Sunday in the lobby, you know, for three seconds, 30 seconds, a couple of minutes. Some of them I knew better than that. It was just, yeah, it was so overwhelming to me personally realize, gosh, in our, just in our one church, there was this many people like legitimately struggling or had struggled with or knew somebody or knows somebody or, you know what I mean? Like it was just way more pervasive, I guess, than I realized that here was a story like this about, like you said, not like a superstar, but certainly somebody who, I mean, what little like six year old boy doesn't at some point in his life, not want to be a, a professional baseball player, you know, correct uh, to get there I, and be like, nah, this still, this didn't do it. This isn't, I'm still something's something's, you know, really in the way of my happiness or my joy or, or whatever it is. I just think, gosh, what a, what a reminder that those, those things don't ultimately bring the, the satisfaction and the wholeness that we, we often think they will, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He goes on, the article goes on to say something that you basically touched on there, uh, that this is a burgeoning mental health crisis in this country, that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that 11 percent of Americans, American adults surveyed in June considered suicide, that suicidal ideation among 18 to 24 year olds was at 26 yeah. percent. He knows uh, talk about Drew Robinson. He knows this is difficult to talk about it. He knows it's even more difficult to suffer through. He knows because he lived it. And earlier in the article, uh, he went on to say uh, one of the reasons he believes he's here is to tell people it's okay not to be okay. that it's okay not to be okay. And so kind of with the time we have, you said you've preached on this and we're kind of blown away by the by the response. Uh, what about the person Ian, out there right now who's like, it's I don't feel OK to not be OK and who's having some of these thoughts kind of start with the it's OK to not be OK. And then if there are people really in the throes of it right now, what would you encourage them to do right now? How can they go get help? Yeah. I'm, I, first off, you know, please talk to somebody. And there's there's all sorts of hotlines and websites and the statistics are are overwhelming. A lot of the feedback that that we got back from people who are currently struggling was how freeing it was to know that they weren't the only one, you know, to know that like part of what makes suicidal ideation so insidious is is it it convinces you that uh, you're the only one who's ever felt this way or feeling this way. And Devona, the the mental health professional that actually interviewed for that Sunday, one of the things she kept reiterating was if somebody tells you that one of the best things to say first is it's understandable that you'd feel this way. It's normal that, you know what I mean? Like Hmm. that's part of, that's another way of saying it's okay to not be okay. Like it seems to be this one thing that we often don't talk about in the church, unfortunately, 
has often been way behind the curve on this one, which is why, like for me, I want to always be iterating like depression is not a sin. Anxiety is not a sin. Mental illness is not a sin. Like we don't ever shame someone for like getting medicine. If they have the flu or getting a cast, if you break your bone and yet still, unfortunately, often in communities of faith, mental health stuff is still stigmatized with the very least is sort of like silenced. It's sort of kept like out there somewhere. And the other thing that I think is really important to remember is that like loving Jesus doesn't always just magically make these things go away that we, we need help and that's okay. And that's not anti-Christian and that's not anti-Jesus to meet with the professional and to maybe meet with one for a long time and to get medication that can help perhaps fix an imbalance to something that's, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of what I mean by when we say it's okay to not be okay. Like, that's the beauty of the gospels that we are all coming with whatever brokenness we bring. And just to remind people that, that you matter, you matter to God, you matter to people that depression is a liar, that scripture is filled with stories of people who struggled profoundly, you know, like sometimes when you, when you rifle through a sermon series or the songs that most churches sing, it would be a surprise to you that like, wow, I don't know the Christian faith had space for struggle and sadness and depression and anxiety. You know what I mean? Like it, it sometimes gets kind of glossed over. And I think just reminding people of those things and who they are in Christ and, and that God sees them and knows them even maybe even especially in the midst of their brokenness or whatever they're, they're carrying. That's, that's why I think it's, it, you can almost never reiterate it too many times. Like whatever you're bringing, bring it fully because Jesus sees it anyway. And there, I think there's a lot of freedom in that. Absolutely. That's a good word. I'd encourage people. This article is so well done and it's so long because it tells the story of Drew Robinson, who growing up in Las Vegas was even a, uh, a teammate of Chris Bryant from the Cubs. And uh, he says uh, at one point in the story about him, he says, uh, one thing I came to learn after all this is I'm not alone. And I think there are people out there who need to hear that, that you're not alone. And so I would encourage you to go read this story up at our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram uh, com- at Common Good Talk about San Francisco outfielder Drew Robinson's. It says his remarkable second act. It's well worth your read. Well, coming up next hour, we're going to begin with uh, David French talking about his latest blog post, How to Be Pro-Life in Joe Biden's America. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about how to be pro-life in Joe Biden's America, an article by David French. And then what should we do about schools reopening in the midst of a pandemic? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. I'm Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on yet another chilly Tuesday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Well, you know, it's turning into we were joking off air. Uh, it's turned into a bit of a, a weekly deal. Uh, someone we like to consider a friend of the show, David French, going to be your neighbor down in the Nashville area, apparently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, David French at the French Press, his his blog, French Press. And David French has uh, increasingly uh, gotten a lot of uh, attention for for just his great writing, but also his strong stances on things. And he wrote this. How to be pro-life in Joe Biden's America, the most effective avenues to preserve life 
still remains. This is on the heels of like this Christian headline, Christian headlines article that says Biden says he's quote, deeply committed to legalized abortion wants pro row federal law. So this is a really important topic right now. And David French writes how to be pro life in Joe Biden's America. Why don't you get us into this? Why one? don't I, Brian? He writes the longer I've been engaged in the quest to eliminate abortion from the United States of America, the more I've become convinced The core challenge rests not on the supply side, the availability of legal abortion access, but rather on the demand side. In other words, a nation or state that wants legal abortion will have legal abortion. And even in a nation or state that severely restricts abortion access, women who want abortion will find a way. That already, I imagine, especially as someone who is a self-proclaimed conservative Christian, that's probably controversial to some ears, right? I imagine that's Mm -hmm. maybe even someone listening, but he goes on. He says, in fact, I'd argue that the best explanation for the long-term decline in the abortion rate is primarily decreased demand. The available data indicates that America's abortion rate is now lower than it was when Roe was decided when abortion was illegal in most American states. If you read this newsletter, you've seen this chart before. It's important to show it again. So I would recommend, I've actually seen seven or eight different versions of this chart and the comment section are they never disappoint, but it is it is worth checking out. He says, though, there is evidence that the abortion rate increased slightly in 2018. Reporting on abortion rates tends to take time. The long term trend is deeply encouraging after an initial and expected surge in abortion rates after Roe legalized abortion from coast to coast. The rate has declined through every single American presidency pro-life and pro-choice. The bottom line is clear. There is no reason for pro-life Americans to simply presume this 40-year positive trend will change and every reason to believe that the most effective forms of pro-life engagement can and will continue even under a Biden presidency. So he's going to get into what some of those ways are. Let me just pause and ask you, Brian, are you, are you, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Are you convinced by his introduction here, like what he finds and what perhaps do you assume might the response be? Yeah, I am convinced. I do believe the data that I know some people don't believe it, but I do believe the data that shows that uh, that abortions went down under President Trump and President Bush and abortions went down under President Obama and that there's more than just political who's in the presidency. I, I do buy a lot of like what Phil Vischer and Sky Jatani did, that work, that video they put out uh, about what is it uh, that causes abortions to go up and go down. I think it's really interesting when French puts it in almost in economic terms about supply versus demand, right? Is uh, uh, it, And that he hangs it on the demand. I think the pushback is going to be, yeah, it's never good, though, to have somebody in office who's saying, quote, I want to I am deeply committed to abortion. It's never good to have a vice president who uh, has a hundred percent approval rating of, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood and other things. These are never good things. And I would agree with that. But I, I do appreciate French saying, but this isn't the time. There's no reason for the church or for pro-life advocates to say, OK, throw our hands up. It's all there's going to be abortions all over the place now that he's saying, no, that that's not what's going on here. And he's going to talk about what it is that actually uh, is going to continue this decline in abortions. And I think uh, the work he does, again, I don't know that everybody believes or knows uh, the, the statistics, but I do believe these statistics. I've seen enough. And like you said, you've seen these charts in different places that I do tend to believe it. And so I think there's certainly work to be done. But I think I think history proves that 
that, that the church can step in here and make a huge impact. Yeah, sure. A little bit later, he says, for pro-life Americans, here's some good news. Do personal intervention, support for church ministry, support for crisis pregnancy centers, and support for effective public policy. You can directly impact most of the concerns outlined above. I've written before to urge pro-life Americans to redouble their personal commitment to supporting moms and babies. No presidential administration can stop you from volunteering at a crisis pregnancy center. You can adopt you can foster parent. You can give money to those working on the front lines to love mothers and children and to save lives. These personal interventions are absolutely vital to preserving life in a nation that increasingly dislikes abortion but still refuses to ban abortion. But let's also talk policy. Let's talk Mitt Romney. Last week, the Utah senator proposed transforming the child tax credit into a child tax allowance that could transform the financial condition of many of America's poorest families. Under the Romney proposal, families would receive $4,200 per year per child up to age six and $3,000 per year per child between ages six and 17. Families would receive a uh, monthly payments and the payments would begin four months prior to the child's due date. Romney proposes paying for the tax allowance in part by repealing the state and local tax deduction. The allowance would also phase out at the highest income levels. I don't know how much you've heard people referring to or uh, responding to this Romney proposal. Do you, do you have much knowledge of what he's, what he's laying out here? I, I don't have a ton, but this is where we get ourselves, interestingly, with my Republican friends where I've had abortion discussions where they really push back. And I, and I always, you know, if, if, if the goal is to, to, de, to drive the number of abortions down, again, I, I referenced the Sky Jatani and Phil Vischer video, that maybe the best thing we can do is to attack poverty. But oftentimes when we go, we're going to attack poverty, we're going to make health care more accessible – it makes my more conservative friends really uneasy. And and that's where kind of the, the hard parts of this discussion happen. Romney saying, if we can get people, uh, if it's no longer a, a choice between poverty and bring another child into the world or something that we can drive down the abortion rate, then I, I actually believe this. I, I do. I, I'm finding myself increasingly being a much more moderate Republican than a lot of my friends. Mm. Uh, but I think, and again, I don't know the tax implications. I don't know this. Like, I get it. There's a lot of people smarter than me. But again, if the ultimate goal in the abortion conversation is to drive down the number of abortions, I think attacking poverty is one of the greatest, if not the most important thing that we can do. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a big leap for some people. And that that is kind of, you know, I, again, Vischer and Jatani's thing said that, Banning Roe versus Wade, overturning it is going to drive abortions down. So yeah. by X amount. So we should go for it. Uh, more restrictive things in states is going to drive abortions out. So we could go for it. But then they say that statistics seem to show that the number one driver would be attacking poverty uh, and and lack of health care. And that's a lot of times where Republicans and conservatives won't go to. But their point was that might actually drive the number down more than the other two things. Yeah. So things like this Romney proposal, I think, are really interesting. Yeah, at the end here, he talks about how he had the privilege of teaching a short course on Christianity and politics at Covenant College. And he says, to those students, my message was simple. I told them about the graph above and the generations long plunge in the abortion rate, regardless of who wielded power. Politics do matter, certainly, but there's a deeper truth. Christians don't need to win Senate races to love their neighbors. They don't need to hold the White House to stand with women in need. And when you're willing to commit to creative and cooperative methods of forming and sustaining thriving families, you'll find that there are many ways of cherishing and preserving our most vulnerable American lives. That is in full French fashion. I imagine he's caught some heat for this one. 
probably for some of the reasons that you mentioned and more, Brian. But at the very least, I, I would honestly love to know what people think of this. Absolutely. David French is just a wonderful uh, writer and uh, people agree, disagree. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put that up at our Facebook page uh, and Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And let us know what you think. We would love some feedback where we write, where we wrong on this. Well, coming up next, uh, Wall Street Journal article called The Tragedy of the Schools. Uh, what is happening long term to our kids as uh, schools are closed or mostly closed during the pandemic. And what can we do about it? That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today on a, on a sunny, beautiful Tuesday afternoon, although frigid and cold. Uh, but we are glad to have you with us. Yesterday, we told everybody uh, about your big move, that this is your last week here uh, on The Common Good on, on AM 1160, that you are moving to Tennessee and uh, that you are going to be taking an awesome church down there called The Bridge. Uh, you're going to be working down there. So if anybody missed that, you could go back and listen to that. But it struck me as I was doing this. What's the over under, do you think, a number of days that it takes me before I stop saying uh, Brian from alongside <laughs> Ian Simpkins. I feel like that's going to take me at least two weeks before I flesh that out of my system, even after you're gone. What are your what well, is your guess? Because that is how I do it every time. Yeah, as a uh, as a going away gift, I actually bought you one of those men in black memory wipey thingies. And uh, so <laughs> last day of the show. Me. Yeah, you just you just turn it on yourself, man. And um, I'll, I, I won't even be a whisper of a memory. You're like, ah, oh, this is uh, this is a show I've done by myself apparently for the last few years. And when did I start doing this show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful about how far back you erase, though. You don't want to, you know, forget, <laughs> forget how to use technology or anything like that. You don't want to go that far. Yeah. So if you're like, what Ian's leaving? Go back and listen to like the five o'clock uh, hour segment yesterday, and Ian explained where he's going. Going to an awesome church down in Nashville. Ian just couldn't handle the cold anymore. He was like, "I'm shoveling. I'm done with this." And he's like, "That's what it is." I don't think it snows down there. I'm out of here. So <laughs> uh, I, I I think that's what it is. So Ian, in the midst of uh, you know we're like eleven months in here on the COVID nineteen pandemic, and there's been a lot of talk as of late about schools and kids going back to schools. This isn't where you're at necessarily with a three-year-old and a two-year-old, but uh, I've got a high school or a junior high or an elementary school student, uh, and they're all in school right now, but not fully in school. This kind of hybrid model, the city of Chicago just going back, I think I read today for the first time in like 330 days that they will step wow. foot inside of schools. And so there's a lot of conversation going on right now about uh, schools and reopening. Uh, President Biden has talked about it. Dr. Fauci, uh, he said he repeatedly referred to, quote, some data that backed up the claim uh, to help younger students specifically to get back for in-person learning. Uh, the Center for Disease Control said uh, that vaccines do not appear to be necessary for schools to be open in person. So anyway, a lot of background there about what's going on with our schools right now, about whether they should be open, whether they should not. And I know, again, you don't have kids in the school. And I, and I do want to turn this uh, to more of a conversation about how kids are doing now. But do you have any opinion or how do you work through as you talk with friends or you watch the news about we're in the midst of a pandemic, but schools kind of need to be open. And so how do you wrestle with that just when you've seen it on the news or talk to friends about it? 
Honestly, I'm going to be very little help in this segment because I've not wrestled with it a lot. I've I've certainly prayed for the parents that have had to navigate yeah. all of this. Um, but not only do I have a weird history with education in general, that's pro- that's point. too that's too ominous. I I did a little bit of private school, a few years of public school, and then I was homeschooled for a long stretch. And that you know, there's multiple reasons for that. But uh, having kids the age, I know that my wife. She, with some other moms in the area, had um, created a sort of like co-op outdoor That's type right. of thing. And and I thought that was really wonderful. And that I got a little more glimpse of like, oh, this is this is why I think this is probably not only so valuable, but also why there's so much grief that they're not able to, you know, for older kids like your age, you know, not your age, your kid's age My or kids your, age, or your yes. age, Brian, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to Billy Madison it, I'm, I'm OK with that. But uh, I, yeah, I don't I've not wrestled with it personally a whole lot so I, I feel completely underqualified to kind of weigh in in that regard that's totally fair and it, obviously it's much more in my wheelhouse right now and i i would just like to see kids be in school as much as safely possible but there's lots of good data out there uh about the uh infrequency that kids um give covid to other kids but but i do want to kind of transition it and and do talk about something that might be more in your wheelhouse as a pastor uh, and that's this, that, that this conversation really centers around uh, the mental health of our children. Uh, sadly, in the in the area, I think I read a stat about in just the Chicago area that there has been upwards of 40 suicides and of high school students this year, uh, wow. which is higher than normal. And, you know, a lot of people putting it towards the coronavirus pandemic and how much life has changed. And so I want to transition away from schools to that and just ask you um when parents see their kids right now struggling, right? Your kids are little, but you you were a youth pastor. You know how this works. Mm-hmm. When, when parents see their kids just struggling with lack of socialization or just the change or, you know, maybe they were the star quarterback on the football team and their football's not going, whatever else it might be. But the pandemic has shaken so much stuff up. What is there to do? What can we as parents, do you think, what would your counsel pastorally or as someone who just, you know, cares for kids uh, what would you suggest to parents that they think about or that they do as they see their kids struggling in the pandemic? I mean, I guess the first thing I would say is don't do nothing like mm. that's that's not an option. You know, the the notion even that like, well, my kid seems fine. So I guess I'll just stay out of his hair, which, again, I I mean, I, I imagine every parent of a teenager right now is like yelling at the radio. Like I realized like I'm way out of my element on this one. But like you said, I you know, spent a, a good amount of time not only doing youth ministry, but studying youth ministry. And one of the things that just became blatantly clear year after year after year was how much students in particular really want to hear from their parents. And even if they mouth off or they're, you know, there's a lot of pushback or even, you know, very real ingrained tension. And I think the other thing to remember especially since and what we now know about brain development and how difficult it is physiologically, even for teenagers to communicate just the complexity of what's happening in their bodies and in their brains under normal circumstances. Like we have to remember they're dealing with trauma. Like they're dealing with grief. It's not just like, ah, man, it's been a, been a rough year, huh? Or, uh, bummed. You can't play football, right? Like that's part of it. That's so surface, though. They're like their brains and their bodies are keeping score, and it they're they're aware of it physiologically, maybe even more than they are consciously. Which is why I think like being patient with them, 
creating multiple avenues for communication, being consistent, maybe even persistent, I guess, in that regard, depending on what your assessment is of, of where of where they're at. I, I do think sometimes, again, this is an, a very, very limited experience. Uh, sometimes parents feel a certain sense of, well, I asked him once four months ago how he was, and he said, fine. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, we, you know, you, it is possible to ask too many times where you're going to like drive a wedge between you and them, but like just really showing up and like, hey, I'm going to preempt this and say, I know this is hard. And this has been, you know, a really difficult year for all of us. And I know that there's probably stuff that you're wearing that you might not even be aware of, but I'm just going to keep checking in with you and I want you to know that. And I think just really overemphasizing the openness of that door, I think is massively important. Man, I think that is so important, especially as a parent. You know, I I used to know that as a youth pastor, but as a parent, my oldest is 17 and uh, and then I have a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old. And I've become convinced that they, you know, you always think kids don't want to talk to their parents. You're 100% right. They actually do. And especially in a traumatizing time like a pandemic, like where everything has been shaken up, uh, that I think you give great counsel there, man, about the fact that don't assume that they're doing fine and don't do nothing. Uh, but be proactive and engaging. And so I think that that is super important. I wanted to touch on it because if you're like me out there, a lot of parents, you're going, I don't know. None of us got into parenting going, yeah, I can't wait, you know, to help them through a pandemic. Like you just never ready for this stuff. Uh, And it's stressful for you with kids who are three and two and trying to help them navigate just what's different, but also for those of us with older kids. And so I think uh, hopefully that's an encouragement to you out there. Like, Talk to your kids. Ask them, how are you? Help them process those feelings. And if they're really not doing well, there is absolutely no shame in going and calling a counselor, calling yeah. somebody in and getting some help. Uh, and I'd so I wanted it. to talk about that. Yeah. It, it, it's more than about schools right now, but more so about all that's gone on in their lives. And hopefully that's helpful for you. Well, coming up next, I want to talk about a tweet I saw. Uh, from Beth Moore over the weekend. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I am Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. We've gotten into a habit of reading tweets. This is from Beth Moore. Uh, Beth Moore, as many people know, she has been uh, very... um, uh, she has been very uh, expressive on on Twitter these days, and uh, I've been very impressed. And so here's what she wrote, and uh, you can decide. I'd like to hear your feedback on this. All right, Ian, here we go. Beth Moore wrote, I don't think we know the gospel. I think we know the plan of salvation, not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what keeps me awake at night. I think that Jesus is saying over us, my people do not know me. And there's a lot packed in there. Ian, let me ask you this first question. Some people might think to her, think from that statement, uh, isn't the gospel the plan of salvation? Aren't those one in the same? How would you answer that question from this tweet or from people with that response? Well, Rich Velotis actually, I think this was this morning. I thought he put it well. He said, the gospel is not just the message that when you die, you go to heaven. It's not even primarily that. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord, creation is being renewed, and in his name, a new, forgiven, and forgiving family is created. I thought that, at least as far as tweets go, was was pretty solid. Now, Beth Moore, this is a part of a longer thread. She's actually responding to someone else. So like that, isolated from itself, might seem a little more confusing than what is helpful. But you're right, though. I think a lot of people 
have been told, are being told, perhaps even are telling others that the gospel, the good news, the big G gospel is simply you get to go to heaven when you die instead of hell. And uh, I think I do. I do think there's a lot of things that are unfortunate about that reality that's been distilled down to just that and only that. I think some of the implications uh, you can imagine are all but inevitable. If the whole goal is just get me out of here, well, then that's going to, that's going to affect, right? The way that you treat your neighbor, the way that you treat the earth, the way that you handle your money and your time and all of those things. I think it's, it's a very, I'll fly away. Oh, glory type of, doctrine which certainly has its place but it's incomplete it's a lot like you know mcknight's golf club analogy when he's talking about in his book a community called atonement he talks about penal substitutionary theory you know first off it's a theory second it's one of the clubs in the bag but scripture has all these other metaphors all these other illustrations and if you limit it just to this one tiny piece he's like man we're we're missing out on like a rich array of what you know in his book atonement's really about and to beth moore's point what the gospel is really about um that's good man i I want you to continue to unpack that uh what people i grew up in some ways and it's not like i was taught this but my mind was hey it was all about the fire insurance right say the prayer go to heaven like that's the point of all of this (laughs) like don't go to the bad place end up in the good place and there might be people out there going yeah that's kind of my understanding of it you called that um you know, uh, you know, it's lacking. I've, that wasn't your word, but but that's not the whole point. Could you unpack that a little bit more? Because there might be people in their cars right now or listen on their podcast going, wait, I thought that was the whole point. So could you flesh that out a little bit more about why that's not the complete point? Oof, I don't know that I am adequately prepared for this question. Yeah, I would say a couple of things. <laughs> You're leaving um, in a week, so let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, so let's just – oh, it's not that I'm hesitant to say what I want to say. It's that I want to get my notes and footnotes in order. But, good point, good point. You know, and I think, you know, juggernauts and titans like Scott McKnight would agree that it's it's actually much more about when we talk about the kingdom of God and what it means to pledge allegiance to that king, to apprentice under Jesus, to become more and more like Jesus. I think those are all things that even the, even the most, you know – what what was the word you use? You talk about growing up fire insurance. Even even those that were like most educated in those schools would still agree. Like, well, yeah, I, all right, I can remember some of that kingdom of God stuff. And I guess he does mention disciples, and Ian said apprentice, yeah. so that's a little weird. But I get, I guess that makes sense. Like, I what I find to be true when when I start kind of pulling back some of the layers. Like, here's the the rich beauty, the expansive power of what the gospel really is. People tend to like, oh, yeah, I guess that's in there, too. Like if you were, you know, <laughs> raised in a church, it's not actually all that scandalous, I don't think. I just think we get a little a little myopic and we get sort of this um, what I used to call the disembodied evacuation model where it's yeah. like just, yeah, get me out of here versus sort of the embodied participatory model. Like, man, Lord, help me see your presence at work here and now. What does it look like to pray your kingdom come here on earth now and to be someone who ushers that in? And I've said it before, I think on the show, we don't, we don't build the kingdom of God. We don't Mm -hmm. multiply it. We don't, we don't do any of it. Like we enter it and then we proclaim it 
and we invite other people to enter it too. We usher it in by how we love God and love our neighbor. And by the way, scripture tells us that one of the ways that we love God is by how we love our neighbor. Like it, mm-hmm. it changes the way that we look at all of our, all of our resources, time, talent, treasure, all of that stuff. And I think when we reduce the gospel or salvation simply to, Oh, I, I, I just get to go to heaven when I die. Well, why wouldn't God just take us right to heaven after we pray that prayer in the first place? Then if the yeah. whole goal is just get me out of here to heaven, I mean, <laughs> wouldn't the thing that makes most sense then like, what? Well, you don't need to waste any more time on planet Earth, then, do you? <laughs> why, why would he leave us here at all if if yeah. there wasn't actually some kind of participatory nature to what it is that we're supposed to do here? Yeah, that's good. And then at the end of her tweet, she says, "I think that Jesus is saying over us, my people do not know me." Uh, I don't know if I've ever shared this story on here, but one of the times that I feel like I literally heard the audible voice of God, like there's been a couple times in my life, and one of them when I was I was a, high, a senior in high school, about ready to go to college, and I was at like a youth retreat a youth conference. And I, I, I believe I literally heard God say to me, and I just, I'm not a crier at that stage of my life. I am now because mm. I'm older and sappier, but I just <laughs> lost it because wow. I literally heard God in my mind say to me, uh, you know, a ton about me, but you don't know me. Yeah, And right. understanding the weight of that difference uh, was so huge. That's what Beth Moore is getting at here. That is saying over us, my people do not know me. Why don't we close out the segment with this, Ian? What, what, how would you differentiate the two, knowing about God versus knowing God? I mean, that's a lot of what the beginning of Revelation 2 is about, right? Where, where John's commending, you know, and he's saying, yeah, you've done a lot of good things. I, I see your good works, says the Lord. And he kind of lists what a bunch of the good things, you know, that everyone's doing. And he says, but I hold this one thing against you. You've left your first love. And then he calls him to repent. And the word repent simply means to change direction, to change your mind and to change trajectory. And he says, man, I, it's as if he's saying God never intended for us to do for him without also doing with him. And I think plenty of us perhaps fit in that category. We're doing lots of good church Christian things, but we're doing them apart from intimacy with God and intimacy yep. should be our primary goal. And it's out of that posture of intimacy than that all of these actions then flow and it's just so much more life-giving that way yeah i i think that tweet by beth moore really when i read it that's what i wanted to talk about on the show here this whole idea about what is the gospel but then this all also this idea about knowing god intimacy with god as you said versus just kind of book knowledge knowing a lot about him i think is just so important especially within our culture so we'd love to know what you think you can do so up at our facebook page twitter and instagram at common good talk well coming up next we're going to end the show uh by talking about this article it's not just you a lot of us are hitting a pandemic wall right now Uh, we're going to discuss that next as we close up the show here on the common good am 1160 hope for your life Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Real excited to have you with us today. Uh, It is holiday time, so got to know the holidays of today. And I've got to tell you, I saw one. I want to see if it comes up. I saw one on Twitter today that made me very excited. Let's see if you've got it. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's National Pizza Day, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, my mind went when I saw it on Twitter. I go, "Ooh, Ian's going to read that one today. (laughs) (laughs) You are, you are, uh, I, I appreciate that. I think everyone should strive to be as easily excitable as you. Like just even seeing oh, it today. on Twitter was, a, was enough for you. Like, Ooh, I hope Ian brings it up. Um, He's going to bring it up. I know it. It's coming. It's coming. Here it is. It's done. <laughs> 
It's also uh, St. Marin's Day in Lebanon. And then I only have one more for you. There's only three on really? this little website that I've been using. I, f- I feel like I should search for a better website because there's, there's been a few that I feel like it's really been missing. But you're probably, you're probably not going to love this one. It's National Toothache Day. Oh, I don't like that one. <laughs> I'm much more It'd be weird like if you did. It'd be weird if you did. Yeah. Yes, you're like, oh, I, I love, love toothaches so much. I'd be so, What's be weird is that concerning. someone turned that into a holiday. That's the weird part. Yeah. How do you celebrate that day? By going to the dentist, apparently. So no, that's not how I celebrate anything. I am disappointed that it wasn't a state. There was no states today. I was ready to guess. So maybe, uh, maybe I, I, I can read it for you. Uh, most holidays are in celebration of something, or at the very least, are meant to commemorate an event or person. National Toothache Day isn't one of those holidays. No, it's a day <laughs> that serves to remind people of the importance of taking care of their teeth, because if they don't, they may end up with a terrible toothache. That's why when people observe this holiday on February 9th, they should put their oral health at the front of their festivities and try to avoid sugary sweets. So I guess you were you were right. That makes sense. So what a terrible day. All you dentists out there coming up with this. <laughs> I mean, it's it's apparently necessary, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. All right. Let's end the show this way from the HuffPost.com. It's not just you. A lot of us are hitting a pandemic wall right now. And it says Julie uh, Reese writes the past few weeks of the coronavirus crisis have been especially taxing on our mental health. Here's why. And we're going to end with some advice for coping. Why don't you read us? Uh, why don't you read some of this article for us? All right, it says within the past couple of weeks, many of us have been slammed with major pandemic fatigue. We're burnt out. We're expected to be productive at work or to parent or often both as though we haven't been living in hell for the last year. The winter has been bleak and could potentially get bleaker. And even though the vaccines are bringing us some much needed hope, our feelings of exhaustion and hopelessness are swallowing any positive emotions whole. It makes sense. We've been at this for a year now and our fight or flight system, the emotional reaction to stress that has been otherwise energizing us throughout this pandemic is totally overloaded. When that happens, the constant flow of adrenaline starts to drain and apathy settles in. It seems that we've all gone over that tipping point. And there's a number of, uh, tweets here where people are kind of uh, in some ways echoing exactly what you said. I'm, I'm hitting a wall. Uh, I'm telling my therapist that I, I'm not really sure which way is up right now. Feeling emotionally zapped, especially in the stage of the coronavirus crisis, is very normal, mental health experts say. If you find yourself stuck in a pandemic-fueled rut, first take a moment to pause and acknowledge your feelings. This is some of what we were talking earlier with, with regards to teenagers. Go easy on yourself as you sit with these dismal emotions. The pandemic's been brutal, and it's time we all cut ourselves a break. My guess is, for some people, this isn't the first time that they've cut themselves a break. Other people, though, maybe really need to hear that right now. Maybe maybe one of the things that you've been doing is distracting yourself with more social media use or more Netflix than you normally would as a way of not sitting with your emotions, not sitting with your feelings. And I think the this initial advice, like, hey, if you feel... If you feel this like constant low grade hum of like anxiety or fear or worry, like you maybe need to like address that, sit with that a little bit before you move on. Yeah. And it goes on to say that also the uncertainty of our futures causes this us to hit this wall. Like, you know, again, the adrenaline of the beginning going, yeah. all right, you know, it's going to be short lived. Here we go. Now we're like a year in going, what, what is my future? You know, what's it ever going to look like? When's it ever going to be normal again? And you kind of lose that adrenaline. Uh, But the important part here, uh, she writes, how can we get through this period, this kind of hitting the wall? She said it's normal for burnout to occur after a period of chronic stress and uncertainty. 
emotional endurance dwindles over time. And given the nature of the pandemic, we don't have the same sense of security we could fall back on during pre-pandemic times. These traditional outlets, the gym, a vacation, going out with friends, visiting family aren't necessarily options right now. Most of us have had to learn new ways to cope with everyday stress since our usual coping skills may not be working. Uh, Service, I think this purpose, advises her patients. So she's earlier one of the uh, counselors advises her patients to first identify the things stressing them out the most. Maybe it's a news, a job, a toxic conversation with a friend and make a plan to address it and set some healthy boundaries. Uh, It might also be a good time to work with a therapist if you don't have a pandemic friendly coping skills. A mental health professional can provide you with specific techniques that work for your life. Of course, mental health care is incredibly expensive. If it's a financial burden, try looking for free options. Lastly, cut yourself some slack. No matter how the pandemic has disrupted your life, recognize that this is hard and that hitting a wall is a completely valid response to totally irregular circumstances. So, Ian, they give us a lot of kind of uh, coping mechanisms and things we can do. But as we start to close close out here for the day, there's a person driving in their car, listening in their kitchen, wherever they might be right now going, oh, my gosh, I've so hit the wall. The adrenaline is gone and, and I'm struggling with how to cope. Did any of those stand out for you or what's a word of advice you'd give to people who are like, I'm at that wall? You know, actually, it's interesting that you use that phrase and this author used the phrase hitting a wall. I actually tweeted this out uh, a couple of weeks ago. I said, sometimes the walls we hit are boundaries to abide by. Hitting a wall could be an invitation to slow down and rest. Sometimes the walls we hit are holding up the ceiling. Like I it just I kept hearing that phrase hitting a wall, hitting a wall. And in my hyper achievement, maybe some of that's my Enneagram three mindset. It's always like, oh, you got to bust through those walls to hit new growth barriers and to reach new horizons. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like sitting in my windowless basement. I'm like, sometimes, sometimes walls are really helpful. Like sometimes walls are really <laughs> good thing. And when you hit that wall, maybe you don't need to, you know, power through it. Like the Kool-Aid man, maybe it's like, Oh yeah, that's right. I have limits. I need to rest. I need to pause and I need to be intentional about what recharges me. I think the other danger is that sometimes we see what other people are doing for rest or rejuvenation and we just try to mimic and copy what they do, which sometimes will help. But, you know, there's a there's a real like know thyself wisdom there. I think we're like, hey, well, we if you don't know, it's worth doing the hard work of figuring out what actually rejuvenates me when I feel like I'm nearing or have already reached burnout. And I think that's that's an important thing for all of us. It takes time. But it's worth doing the hard work of, of figuring out what that actually is. Yeah, and I think some of the some of the really simple stuff also that we talked about as you feel like you're hitting burnout. Like yesterday, we did literally an article about the power of a walk, <laughs> like why to go for yeah, a walk. Right. Tomorrow, we're doing a, something about why your brain loves exercise and then how you can exercise. If you can't go to the gym or outside, what can you do in your home uh, eating right, you know? but also the power of friendships and community. I think there are some things that we've always known, but right now it's so hard. Like you said, when you hit that wall, when you lose that adrenaline rush to be like, ah, it's all, I, I can't do anything. And you just kind of uh, struggle with it. Like you said, if, if you're in a really bad spot, you know, hopefully you can get help call therapist as this article says, uh, but there's also little things that we can be doing. So again, we try to end the show with not just inspiration, but just some things to get you thinking, maybe some things to go, you know what? Uh, I could use some of that advice as I'm going forward. Well, we're glad that you joined us today again on a sunny, snowy Tuesday. We're going to be together again tomorrow from four until six. Until then, we hope you have a great night. 
For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs>